This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and today I'd like to welcome my perfectly cultured co-host, Jon. Ah, I'm just part of the dream team. <laughs> When's the rest of the dream team turning up? <laughs> um, I don't know, I guess uh, after the hay fever has passed. Indeed, indeed. Apologies for the slightly stuffy, nasally sounding uh, side of things on my side. I am, as Jon mentions, suffering from hay fever rather uh, dreadfully. So, uh, yes, if I randomly mute or sneeze or actually, well, Jon's probably able to cut most of those out. But if I randomly uh, mute, then uh, that's the explanation. Or it could be just that Jon's randomly muting me. That's also possible. Yeah, you have to, you have such a foul, foul mouth, but I, from time to time that I really have to censor you. I mean, it's just keeping the internet safe for the younger generation. The internet will never be safe, never again. Are you saying I'm failing? I thought I was part of the dream <laughs> team. That didn't take long, as usual. I think the culture in this roaring elephant podcast organization has really left something to be desired. Yeah, <laughs> it's very toxic. <laughs> but let's let's talk about uh, the the dream that uh, of cultures. This is once again uh, another kind of organizational culture episode. Um, we're sort of getting to the point where we're wrapping up this series, but uh, we thought we had one more. We think actually maybe we've got two more. We'll see where it leads. But we're sort of focusing more on. Uh, some of the external research that people have done on actually what makes maybe not the perfect company culture, but at least what are the attributes that people strive for? What are the things that really make an impact on a positive uh, company culture from at least from these different uh, folks' opinions and based on the research that they've done? Yeah, because when we research the previous episodes in this series we are kind of focusing on the negative parts of everything but we did find a couple of positive things or at least aspirational articles where you could go yeah. to get some information and there were a couple here that were actually quite good they're not from this year they've, they've got some age on them perhaps but this kind of knowledge doesn't really age off that often or that quickly i would say so we i personally still, still thought it was quite uh, enlightening to be honest yeah yeah, and full full credit to Jon, uh, both this and the next episode are based around articles that he sourced. And uh, I think they're, a, they're an excellent, yeah, as, as Jon says, relatively timeless uh, look at things. Um, and still, like that. I mean, the first article we're going to be talking about, or talking around, I suppose, really, is um, the sort of best workplace on earth from the Harvard Business Review. And this is actually sort of back from 2013. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's still you know, not a million years ago, but it's still, I think, very much relevant today. Yeah, and one thing just to get it out of the way was for me, it was kind of enlightening that these were written well before the COVID period, but they were quite relevant still. I mean, COVID has changed the world in a lot of different ways, but not on this point, because with or without COVID, corporate culture and what you should take care of that's independent of occasional contextual changes in group minds, whatever. It's much more fundamental than that. Yeah, I, I think that 
COVID for some people makes some things more difficult, but the the fundamentals that people rely on are still the same. It's just the the method of expressing them, the method of generating them, those sorts of things. But yeah, the fundamentals are still very much there. Yeah. Well, the one thing that COVID did break, perhaps, is that people, it got harder to ignore certain things. You kind of had to deal with some stuff that you beforehand could kind of say, yeah, we're good enough. It did kind of accentuate a couple of things that made, mm. uh, hopefully, the world a little bit of a better place. But uh, yeah, as you say, evergreen stuff. Indeed. So I think we can probably just start off with... Um, do you want to run through all six and then and then sort of uh, go a little bit deeper into the main six points? Um, yeah, let's just do them point by point. Just perhaps as context, this is an article from the Harvard Business Review from 2013, as you said. And basically, they've done uh, surveys and questionnaires for, uh, as I say, hundreds of executives and through surveys and seminars all over the world. And the one thing before I want to jump in here is a question to you, perhaps. They're specifically asking executives about what the perfect culture should be in their eyes. Is that myopic? Uh, should they be more broad and also look at the the the, the peons, the bottom up, <laughs> the, the, the individual bottom contributors? Up sort of view of things. Yeah, because I mean, the risk here is that you have kind of a glass bubble view of not and uh, not the whole context. Although I must say, the, con- the the article itself did present, I think, a pretty good overview, but. When I started reading, that was a bit of a, uh, hmm, why? Yeah. I I think it's a fair point. But as you say, like the the actual results seem to be very broad and very, uh, very balanced. I, I think like a lot of this stuff, it depends on who you ask the opinions. If you ask the opinions of someone, you know, an exec, that is fully sort of grounded into their their team and the ethos and the culture and they they really get it and they understand it and they know how to foster it then i think you maybe don't need as much to go sort of top down and bottom up but obviously if you're talking to someone that's got a completely skewed view of the world maybe a unrealistic view or a, a just a, a view that is uh, maybe not quite aligned with what other people further down the organization think then you you're right like you do get a very skewed and and sort of uh, um, you know myopic or distorted view of things but I for for whatever reason whether it was the just the sheer quantity of people that they interviewed or the uh, the types of people that they spent time with I think they've ended up with something that for me at least um and it sounds like for you as well actually seems like a pretty sensible set of of thoughts on this on this particular point yeah actually that kind of makes sense of course because if you are the kind of executive that has been able to build at least partially the dream uh, company then you're in touch with your people you're in touch with the people working for you the people you're working for and you should be able to give this and probably they well that's Pretty much what they did, right? They went out to find executives that did it correctly, whatever correctly may be, and yeah. used their knowledge, their insights to build this article. And basically, that's how it uh, came to be. So anyway, in the article, they kind of have six uh, topics that they found to be important 
for this uh, dream company structure, let's say. And let's, uh, yeah, the first one is uh, let people be themselves. You want to talk about this first? Yeah, definitely. It, on on the outset, it sounds a little bit, uh, a little bit kind of hippie and uh, and uh, and summer of love and like let let it be, dude. But it's actually it's actually a lot more um, fundamental than that. Like allowing people to do what they do best in the way that they do it, not necessarily forcing people to conform to one particular way of doing things necessarily as long as it's positive as long as it's something that you know is supported by uh, and works with the flow of the rest of the team or the organization uh, it's it's incredibly important and it this uh, this point also talks about uh, diversity across gender race uh, age ethnicity and all those sorts of things as well but it's for me this is this is really all about allowing people to contribute to an organization contribute to a team contribute to a a function in the way that they can make the most impact and like not everybody is wired the same way thinks the same way and interacts the same way so it's about using the strengths of different people in your team for different areas of of sort of focus and where they can say where they can contribute yeah and they also specifically call out that you shouldn't just be limited to the the well-known uh categorizations like the gender race age ethnicity and things like that but also just things like uh, they say uh, habits of mind core assumptions perspectives because differentiation diversity is much broader than what you see it's also in how people act think and experience the world around them now i do think yes i was just gonna say like i mean just taking some relatively simple examples outside of that core set of diversity and again i think we've talked about this before but like having people from different backgrounds is in uh, different sort of work backgrounds for example is incredibly important you know if you've got uh you know someone from uh you know a manufacturing background back in the day someone from a, a software engineering background someone else from a um you know cybersecurity background someone else from a developer background and depending on what you're doing those each can provide very very different insights into you know something that you're doing in in your current organization uh another example of something that uh, where you've got different perspectives of things would be you know something relatively simple like introverts and extroverts yep. and and people you know all those different uh, levels in between there's there's no sort of uh, there's no right or wrong way uh, to do this and uh, there's no sort of no one of those particular behaviors is not any better or worse than the other and in fact again I would say that having a variety there is actually uh, something that uh, is is complementary to most organizations uh, but there's of course a limitation because if you're going to do i don't know a software a software project it doesn't make sense to have a farmer in in the group you, you need to have a kind of core competencies that at least contribute to the project so the team itself will always have some kind of main team then with an h <laughs> so that's yeah. kind of unavoidable within that there's still some differentiation what i was thinking about when you were talking there is 
the leader of the team, if you see that person as more of a project leader and not a contributing leader to the actual core project itself, doesn't necessarily need to have that core competency because a project leader is supposed to make sure the team works well, they have all they need, they have the timelines, but doesn't necessarily need to know the ins and outs of what they're actually doing. It might help to be able to have the same terminology, communication might be better, but from the point of diversity, it might actually be better, and this is a question, not a statement, it might mm-hmm. actually be better to have a leader, a manager that has no idea what you're doing in everyday work. Mm. I, I found that it helps to have an understanding of, of, what, of what is happening because what you don't want is to be landed into a position where literally someone opens their mouth, talks to you for a few minutes, and you've no idea what they were just talking about. Like it's completely alien to you. You've no, you've literally no idea what it is that they're talking about, doing, proposing, anything like that. So there's there's always a, there's a limit to that. But I think the I think you're right in terms of the 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 depth of knowledge is different. So. I would say, for example, in my role, I understand the sphere. I understand the the problems that, you know, my team, for example, faces on a regular basis. Do I know the level of detail that they are all individually capable of going down to in their individual areas? No, definitely not. They are individually in a variety of different areas, far more skilled than than I am but I understand the, the the problem space I understand the domain I know the kinds of challenges that they're facing and in some of these areas I've had previous experience and I'm able to guide and and mentor along the way and I think that's the piece where having some overlap uh, of of knowledge in that sort of Venn diagram, if you like, is is important because if you're expecting to kind of guide and mentor uh, people, then you need there needs to be something that you can guide and mentor them on. There needs mm-hmm. to be something that you can help them grow as individuals. And if if you're that, I think to your question is if you're a, a project lead and maybe not a a manager or a team leader, I think those two things are maybe different. If you're literally just driving a project to a Gantt chart, for example, yes, I think you can argue that less domain knowledge is maybe not preferable, but less domain knowledge is possible. If you're actually a manager and a leader, I think you do actually need a certain element of domain knowledge and experience. Yeah, I mean, personally, for me, for a project leader, I I, I kind of like it if they don't have deep domain knowledge because it divides my it avoids micromanagement. Because if the person that leads the project also is very knowledgeable about it, it's he's he has a role of he she sorry has a role of authority and is able to push his views down. If there's no domain knowledge, you, you have less of a risk there. Mm. Um, I think micromanagement is is a different sort of aspect though. Like if I think about. A, project leader that has a lot of experience and they're able to contribute that experience without micromanagement, I think that's hugely valuable. 
but you're right. Like if someone is second guessing, not not in a constructive way, but in a negative way, second guessing the team, second guessing every decision that's made, not trusting people to to do what they do well, you know, why basically do the job they were hired to do, then you're right. That's a very that's a very negative connotation. I do think though that you see sometimes positions where someone with a lot of domain knowledge that's driving a project is able to say, hey, just quick question, have you thought about this? And sometimes the individuals are so buried in their own little kind yeah. of scope of things that maybe they hadn't really thought about that or considered that. So in some of those cases, being able to say, actually, no, I, I hadn't thought about that. And again, if you're talking about a project leader, they've probably got multiple individuals that they're working with. So by the very nature, they see the wider picture, they see overall what's going on, and they may be able to join a couple of dots that maybe individuals aren't necessarily as aware of. But again, that then also comes back to communication. Now, when you talked about the the people manager instead of the project manager, you talked about mentoring and stuff like that. I, I'd still say that you don't need domain knowledge for that because if you look at mentoring, in my experience, mentoring is more, okay, there's a bit of a part of, okay, where do you find the resources you need, who you, who you contact, but it's, it's more that. Where are the contacts? How do you communicate? How do you work with the rest of the environment? It's much more a soft skill mentoring than a hard skill mentoring usually because hard be. skills is more training. I don't see this as mentoring. And in that it case, domain knowledge, again, is less important than, yeah, being a good people manager at that point, people, team leader kind of thing. And again, having less of the, I, I'd still see that the, the leader of the team is the best position to have the most diverse background, to be able yep. to challenge the team, to be able to guide them in sometimes cul-de-sacs sometimes they end up nowhere you have to turn back but hey any failure is, lear- is, is learning something right you learn one more thing that doesn't work and that's how you advance in the in the, the big scheme of things basically yep, that's absolutely. Uh, yeah it, I, I like the, the sort of final point that's uh, mentioned on this particular let people be themselves is um Actually, let me just read this. It says, Pursuit of predictability leads to a culture of conformity or mechanical solidarity. But dream companies are forged out of organic solidarity, which rests on the productive exploitation of differences. I would never have put those words together, (laughs) but having having read them and having now spoken them, I, that to me makes absolutely perfect sense. Like the this idea of multiple different uh, people with different perspectives just organically meshing together. Wow, it's a terrible uh, mental visual. Whatever you do, <laughs> don't think about it. Um, but but that that to me, like it it makes perfect sense. And again, I, I've seen this. A number of a number of times in my career and when you when you do have this kind of group of people that are 
you know, different in their own ways and yet seem to gel together so well. It's it's honestly, it was one of the most rewarding things as a manager when you manage to sort of pull together a team that is able to operate and grow and develop like this. Yeah, I, I'm so glad the author chose not to use the synergy word here because synergy has been using everywhere and in the end it has no meaning anymore. But basically, yeah. this is what synergy is supposed to be, the productive exploitation of differences. And I love the fact yeah. that he's using the word exploitation, which is a very negative word, but yeah. it kind of makes me trust the author more because he's n he's not mincing words. I mean, this is not a touchy-feely plants and animals article. It's pretty <laughs> hard-hitting at times. And it does yeah. make perfect sense. Agreed, so. agreed. Now you did so jump over the one thing I did want to mention very yeah, quickly yeah. here is that, yeah, when you talk about the diversity, you talked about the hippie culture. And typically when people think of this stuff, it's indeed going towards a more chaotic, towards a less structure, to, towards the everything free, sandals, shorts, whatever. But in this article, he also, the person also says, it can also mean that in a very chaotic, open source, uh, very free environment, if a person wants to wear a suit, great. If he's one of the few yeah. that does that, it's a unique perspective. Allow that, let it be enrichment of the whole culture, of the whole group mindset. Don't force people to do something different. And this is a bit of a personal thing for me because I live, I work at a company that's usually t-shirts and free and whatever. I still like to wear a, sh a button down shirt when I talk to a customer because that makes me, I think, do a better job because that's how my mind works. And I'm happy to say that my company allows that. So, yeah. 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 So the next one, I think. I like this article so much. And I think one of the reasons I like this article so much is because when you when you think about this, the the points kind of flow one from the other. They build on each other. And so this this second one is around unleashing the flow of information. Um the I I love this point so much because it is absolutely to the core how I think and how I manage. So this is around, you know, do not deceive, don't stonewall, distort, spin um, information in every single way that you possibly can. Tell your employees, your team, your group the truth uh, before someone else does inevitably now, does yeah like we we we've all been there when we hear something through the uh the internal grapevine and then you hear it you know at some point later from from a manager and you're like yeah yeah i knew that already and they're like what what but that's 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 supposed to be embargoed no one's supposed to know it's like well maybe no one was supposed to know but the, the grapevine is far more effective than official communications that especially the larger organizations get you know I, yeah. the the larger they the larger they get the faster that the the grapevine works and it seems almost the slower that official communication works uh, is it, is it the just, inverse of it that the larger a company becomes the more restrictions that are on communication that allow a grapevine to be successful and grow faster yeah it could well be could well be but so here's a question for you then 
Does it need to be that way? Um, I'm going to say the unpopular yes. And it's it doesn't need to be that way all the way, but there, it's inevitable because the bigger the company becomes, the more legislation, compliance becomes a part of it. The more litigious people will start attacking you and the more people start to get a more defensive mindset. With even the best intentions, I'm trying to protect my employees. I'm not going to tell them the stuff so they can't leak it, so they won't get sued. And but see, it's it's a tricky tricky slope. It's very it's good to start with good intentions. It's hard to know where to stop and when enough is enough. And in a dream a dream organization, you can trust your people, your employees, to know how far they can go and where they have to stop. A decent, a, a decent, a bad word. A dream company will allow their people to post stuff on Twitter, post stuff on Facebook, because mm. ideally the people know this is what I can tell the world from my point of view without overstepping the bounds of my knowledge sphere, influence sphere, and what I'm supposed to do, <laughs> which is also part yeah. of the job. But that's a hard thing to be certain of at the point if you have thousands of people in your company. Yeah. Do you leave it open? Do you close it down? I mean, in my experience, I've worked for small companies and I've worked for companies that had 100,000 employees. And inevitably, invariably, there is a difference on how that works. And I think that's unavoidable. So that's why I say, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. I I think that this is, this is one of these principles that, it has a number of different elements to it. So you've got, you've got, so if you're unleashing this flow of information, you're not doing it just so you can beat the internal grapevine. You're doing it for strategic um, reasons. You're doing it for a real purpose. And one of those can be because the, the more information you give people and the faster that you can get them that information the more informed they can be about decisions they're making the the more you can delegate responsibility decisions you know throughout an organization there's nothing worse than organizations where everything is is top down and decided at the very top because by the time they've collected all of the respective information in many industries nowadays especially it's all out of date so they then make some huge deliberation and decision and then flow down their sort of particular vision of things and by the time it reaches the people at the bottom they're like well this doesn't make sense anymore because we provided you that feedback since months ago the whole everything that we're doing has moved on right now so you're telling us to do something that no longer no longer is relevant and it's this ability to delegate is driven by this transparency of of communication um but there's a there's a there's a sort of there's a cost to this because transparency and providing this level of uh flow of information flow of communication is is often seen as a very significant overhead and you'll see this continual like fine balance of not how much communication is too much, but how much is, how do you balance between 
spending all of your time communicating and doing so much communication that no one actually ends up reading it versus um, the right sort of balance of communication where you you provide an appropriate level of detail and transparency, but not so much that you overwhelm people and not too little that people don't feel they have enough information to actually make any decisions or form any opinions. Yeah, and that's both on the technical level, the political level, the sociocultural oh, level, across, it's across the across whole the thing, board. right? And, and there's no, we found the, the perfect medium here that this is what we're doing from now on. It's very contextual as well. Some mm. topics require more depth, less depth, things like that. It's unavoidable, but it's, I mean, it's an effort that you have to do it, especially if you've, already conform to the first point about the diversity thing. If you have built diverse teams with a lot of background, a lot of inf a lot of uh, potential, if you don't give those people the information, you can't use that potential. It's always an effort at that point. At that point, just keep it all conformist and don't allow changes because you're not going to be using that richness anyway. The whole idea of having diverse work workforces and open communication go hand in hand. If you only have one of the two, the other one is useless. Yeah, fully agreed. And again, like the when we're talking about uh, transparency and, and information flow, that there are obviously things that you know cannot be cannot be as open and transparent as maybe everybody would would like. So uh, you know, we acquired. Uh, a company um, relatively recently, within the last uh, couple of uh, couple of weeks, and you know, internally within the organisation, we we knew about this you know a significant amount of time apart uh, ahead of things. Like we knew that there was an acquisition that was going to happen quite some time ago. We didn't know any details, but we knew that something was going to happen. Then, as the deadline got closer, okay, now we know the kind of organization, the kind of size, but maybe not the exact information. And then as it got closer again, okay, now we know exactly who it is. We've spoken to them. We've been intro to them and we're excited for what's going to happen. And then obviously the, the public announcement is made and, and then the whole world knows. But like you, you can't go ahead and like at the very earliest time you're thinking about you know, doing something like an acquisition, you can't go ahead and just say, Oh yeah, we're going to do this. When actually, maybe there's still a lot of negotiation to do. Maybe there's you know, reasons why you're still trying to figure out some of the fine grain detail, and you know some of those things for for obvious reasons need to be, you know, veiled behind a level of um, uh, not security, but a level of um, discretion. Discretion, yeah, excellent word, excellent word. Um, and you know you'll see this across you know for for many organisations, for example, you know exact uh, pay and remunerations are you know personal to individuals for often very good reasons. There are a handful of organisations where, for example, everything is completely transparent, but realistically, that's that's very 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 few and and far between for most organisations. That's personal to you and your your manager and your HR sort of business partner type folks. So there's, you know, this this idea of uh, radical honesty and 
and you know t- complete transparency there are always there are always limits there are always you know as you said earlier Jan, sometimes there are regulatory limitations sometimes there are um sort of there's a level of sensitivity around uh, finances and you know legal situations and things like that and uh, and that's that's just the way that that's just the way that things are there are there are certain laws that organizations just need to conform to and there's certain best practices that just means that certain things need to be uh, kept at a level of as you say discretion yeah i mean the, the the concept of radical honesty doesn't imply full disclosure i mean yeah but just be honest about the fact that you're not disclosing it yeah don't assimilate exactly. that fact that's what honesty means uh, just going back to the uh, salary thing you just talked about there that that's something that's usually kept uh, with discretion let's say some companies um, don't allow employees to tell each other information around the salary. Yeah. Apart from the fact whether or not that is enforceable at all. <laughs> exactly. What's, what's your stance against that? Uh, I, think, that? It, I think it's impossible to enforce. I think it's it's ridiculous. Like you can you can maybe have a policy that like these things are really between you and your manager uh but i i honestly don't understand you know how on earth you would enforce that kind of um communication limitation between individual peers like when when people are people naturally talk about these things as they become closer and become friends and when review cycles are coming round and like it it is to a certain extent it is almost inevitable eventually that a handful of people will talk to each other about these different things i my personal opinion is i think it's impossible to um to enforce any any of those kind of you can certainly make a a, a sort of a it's it's our practice that you shouldn't really be discussing these things between individuals sure but like enforcing that really is is just ridiculous so it's better to just you know just say well this is our company policy is that really these are conversations that you should have with your manager and i think there are reasons for that are that in some cases you've got people that are um, you know being developed in a certain area or you've got people that are you know typically organizations have salary bands that people fit into and someone's particular situation may not match someone else's situation maybe that's a a geographic location that they're in and usually salary bands for example are done by by geography uh, by country or city or region or whatever depending on the level of detail you have so you know someone in um uh, someone in sort of western europe for example is going to have a different salary to someone in eastern europe uh for um who is also going to have a different salary to someone in north america like the even if they're doing the same job in the majority of cases and again not everywhere some people have this idea that you know salaries are the same for every role regardless of where you are in, on the planet and again that's a it's a case very few and far between but for most organizations they have these salaries they have these bands 
And some people are, you know, towards the top of these bands and some people are lower on these bands and some people are working towards these things. And it's just, it's a very complicated kind of situation. And it's one of these things that I think individuals need to be very careful when they're having these conversations to make sure that they have some idea about what's actually happening in the background as well. Because sometimes you can get the the wrong end of the stick, the wrong impression, and uh, there's a lot of you know pay and uh, and salaries and and bonuses and that sort of thing is a is a very very complicated area I think. Yeah, but you're going back on that slippery slope of protecting employees from don't talk about this because if you do, it's going to cause problems. It should be an individual choice at this point. And the it people should. you're hiring, Absolutely. I mean, if if the people you're hiring don't have the maturity to be able to have that kind of discussion, you should be thinking about why you're hiring these people in the first place. Yep. So it should be personal choice. And I mean, you mentioned a couple of times, uh, should it be enforced that people can't talk about it? I mean, no, because the moment you enforce something like that, you, it gives a very bad it. impression. But even if you, you try, the it. moment, uh, agree, you can't, but the moment that you position that it should be, it immediately triggers people to think you're hiding something. Yeah, and that's the worst yeah. part, the worst thing that can happen, because the moment that people have that in their mind, they will never think, mm, okay, it's, I, I can expect what I should earn. They will always think, oh, they're giving me less, or else it will be more open about it. And that's where the whole idea of being open about the, the radical honesty concept, it yeah. takes away a lot of negativism in the environments. We're not specifically talking about salary because it's a very opinionated point, but it's yeah. generically applicable, right? And th there are places in the world where it's actually a non-issue because if I'm not mistaken, in Sweden, all of the salaries are actually published by the government. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as, a, as a company, you have very little control on how much you pay people because that's all organized by government officials and it's you can just look on the internet who has what wage thing of course there is secondary uh, secondary stuff things like bonuses mm. travel uh, allowances uh, clothing allowances things like that and that even makes it even harder to discuss this of course because salary is one yeah. thing but you have to always look at the whole picture where the person's living and so on and so on and the other, the, just to make sure there's no misunderstanding there. You made the comparison between West and Eastern Europe. It's not a differentiation between the intelligence of the people there. It's all to do about cost of living, right? Cost Correct. of living in certain parts of the world is a lot lower than in other parts of the world. And salaries kind of should be in relation to that, basically. Yeah. But as I say, there are, there are some organizations, not very many, a handful of them, that actually just say, well, this is our global rate for this particular role. It's, I find it a little bit baffling, um, but and it, I think it was, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure how that works at any scale, which I think is the yeah. is the challenge. Uh, the the organisations I've seen that do this are at the sort of uh, fifty, you know, between twenty to fifty sort of employees, and at that point. You, you can almost do anything you want and it doesn't necessarily matter. But as you get into the hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees, it, that becomes a little bit uh, sort of... I mean, it's going to be related, of course. How you would make that work. 
I don't think it's the number of people, but the geographical spread of the people. Because sure. if you have a, a factory and there's like 10,000 people working at factory building coffee makers, if they're all in the same city, in the same suburb, of cost course. of living the same, and you can be very horizontal in these bands. It's the moment you got different, you got distributed, the whole distributed company idea. You can have a company of 10 people, but they're all in a different country. Yeah. Yeah. Much that's and that, that was this particular case. They all were a globally distributed organization. So, yes, interesting. So, I think let's do let's do one more uh, one more value, and then I think we will uh, we will wrap. Or do you think that uh, now's the time to to make the cut, and we'll come back and uh, run through a couple more points on the next episode? I think that the next four are, are I mean, in all lists, the, the the juicy ones are at the top, and the less juicy ones are at the bottom. <laughs> So we've been able to talk like half an hour on the first two. I don't think the next four will have uh, that much. So I'd actually say let's make the cut here. All righty then. Well, that's it from me. Well, but on that authoritative decision without any kind of seeking of knowledge or consensus in the, in the company there, I have decided that this is all the time we have for today. <laughs> <laughs> you give me, a, give me an ounce of power, I'm going to abuse it to the fullest. You can support the podcast. You can become a patron. Every contribution does help. We are on YouTube. You can see us there in full glory, gesticulating and everything, making silly faces from time to time. Go there, subscribe, hit notification bell. Make me feel that all that work to putting the videos up there is actually worthwhile. Thank you. We are still on MP3, of course, as well. So just download the MP3. It's the same content. It's the same workflow for me. So it works fine as well. You can also go to our website at www.roadingalpha.org. There's links to the Patreon page, the YouTube page, and all of the rest of the podcast information. You can follow me on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag, and you can send email to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Let us know how you're enjoying this uh, little series on corporate culture. Until next time, my name is uh, Power Hungry Jon. <laughs> and my name is Radically Honest Dave. And you look forward to apparently very honestly talking to you again next week. Goodbye. See you then.